I'm Mindy Peterson, and this is Enhanced Life with Music, a look at music's effect on our everyday lives. Thanks to a tweet by listener Anita Holford, I recently came across a flowchart created by Dr. Portia Maltzby. I'll include a link in the show notes. It depicts the evolution of African-American music. And this chart shows how so many of our musical genres had their origins in African music, including jazz, blues, rock, soul, rap, hip-hop, gospel, swing, and other band music. And it really caught my attention because when I took college music classes, I don't remember hearing much at all about African music or composers of color other than a little paragraph about Louis Armstrong or a chapter specifically about world or ethnic music. And if we talk more specifically about classical music, we hear even less about composers of color or women composers, but that's a topic for another day. So I was really intrigued when I recently came across an organization I wasn't familiar with called the Sphinx Organization. Sphinx is the leading advocate for transforming lives through the power of diversity in the arts worldwide. Joining me today from the great state of Michigan is Sphinx Organization President and Artistic Director Afa Dworkin. Her bachelor's and master's degrees are in violin performance from the University of Michigan School of Music, where she is now a lecturer. Her career as a performer has taken her to Russia, Switzerland, Austria, and the U.S. Ms. Dworkin is a recipient of Kennedy Center's Human Spirit Award and has been named one of Musical America's Top 30 Influencers in the Nation and Detroit Cranes 40 Under 40. Welcome to Enhanced Life with Music, Afa. Thank you so much. It is great to be here. I recently listened to an episode of the podcast, How Music Does That, by Dale McGowan, entitled As White as Classical. The subtitle is Classical Music Isn't That White by Accident, and it can't afford to stay that way. McGowan is a professor, and this was an eye-opening episode for me. It explored the intentional gatekeeping that took place throughout history to keep classical music white. This involved, among other things, theater and music critics admitting to meetings where they voted to pan a performance solely because, quote, the colored boy had gone far enough, end quote, or, quote, we were only going to let so many Negroes through, end quote. Black music and composers were kept out of history books, and the list goes on. Afa, can you give us a brief overview of the history of the whiteness of specifically classical music and also your perspective on where we are today as it relates to the color of the classical music world? Sure. Uh, you know, I would scarcely be able to vouch for giving us a f- full overview of how um, sort of the anthology of whiteness and classical music, because that would probably take a day or sure. more. Um, I will say we're continuing to live it. And there is a the ratio, there's a combination of uh, intentional and unintentional and more implicit whiteness uh, that, that persists in our sector today. Um, interestingly, of course, still not enough people know that uh, there are contemporaries of Mozart and Beethoven and onward um, who are of Black or African heritage. Uh, 
mm-hmm. and have created volumes of works that are meritorious, wonderful to study, and entirely and intentionally excluded and overlooked. Um, there is a plethora of Black composers writing today in the classical genre, probably so many more, too many to count, really. Um, there's there's incredible music really for the orchestral medium, band, all of the solo instruments, and of course the vocal medium as well. Yet we don't study them and we don't teach them. Um, so I, I will say that when Sphinx was founded, now nearly 25 years ago, uh, Blacks and Latinx, which is another constituency that is part of Sphinx's primary mission and focus, um, comprised one and a half percent in American orchestras. We are today just a little bit more than 4% combined. Hmm. Um, So that's just, of course, orchestras aren't the entirety of our field, but it is a large subset. Um, So we've made incremental progress. I'll also say that uh, there has been good work being done in terms of um, throughout Sphinx's history, building upon partnerships and the work of partner institutions. More than 20 um, conservatories and music schools have joined the ranks of partners with Sphinx, and nearly 80 orchestras are now partnering with Sphinx one way or another, uh, contributing to kind of making progress toward a, a better and more equitable representation. But we've got a long way to go without a question. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think in my mind, a vision for which we should strive um, is having our music institutions, music schools, conservatories, presenting houses, orchestras, opera companies look like our communities do. And until some, such time that we are that reflective, we can't claim there's a balance and we can't claim that we've made progress that is equitable and uh, morally sufficient. When we talk about the color of classical music and that classical music world, are we talking primarily about music being performed by composers of color? Or are we talking about the performers themselves being performers of color or all of the above? Definitely all of the above. Okay. And and importantly, uh, also those who curate the music Mm-hmm. And those who assemble our syllabi and, so, so to speak, not only establish but perpetuate the concept of canon, what is to be performed and studied, what is to be passed down the generations. I think we're talking about that homogeneity all throughout the ranks of the important decision makers and those who um, essentially mentor our students in music schools and conservatories and then onward, you know, artistic administrators comprise today uh, a zero, statistical zero in American orchestras. So uh, there's definitely a dearth of representation, but by no means a dearth of talent. Mm. Um, Just kind of as a short overview, Sphinx itself reaches 10,000 people annually through its programming and more than 2 million in audiences live and broadcast. We have nearly 800 alumni all black and brown, um, who play at an incredibly accomplished level. Um, Every summer, we train and study and help empower nearly 90 young musicians of black and Latinx heritage uh, who are actively pursuing uh, classical music studies and our string instrumentalists themselves. Uh, we have four different touring ensembles. So I can one thing I can say with certainty is that there is not a lack of talent, mm-hmm. but there's absolutely 
a lack of representation, a lack of inclusion, also plenty of purposeful exclusion. Because if for years we have purposely excluded and now we're looking for different results, we would want to expect to entirely turn our model of engagement upside down so that we can have a different result. And that's not really occurred, unfortunately, mm-hmm. in the field. When you yeah, that would take about... a lot of it. Yeah. Sorry, that would take a lot of intentionality. Sure. When you talk about the decision makers and the curators of music, do you see those people, those individuals as primarily being administrators and faculty at universities? Do you see them being administration or conductors with orchestras? Who do you see being those decision makers? Actually, I see all of those um, people in all of those posts as critically important. And there's a lack of representation on all of those fronts. Music directors um, at the moment combined are at about 2% Black and Latinx. Uh, Also, there are very few, certainly Black and Brown, uh, directors of orchestral studies uh, in our top music schools and conservatories as well. And they certainly shape a lot of the direction in which the canon is presented and studied. But also I'm referring to not only artistic administrators and um, those who make decisions in presenting houses. And that would be, you know, CEOs and those who work with artists and shape the programming as well. Uh, But also importantly, mentors and professors in music schools and conservatories. I see that in the recent months, there have been some shifts um, and exciting hires to various faculty in major music schools. Those are encouraging early steps, but not a moment too soon. One important shift that the field should want to make by now is uh, a decision to understand and accept that we cannot be excellent. We cannot be artistically excellent unless we are inclusive and unless we are representative. So many other sectors in our lives, even the corporate sector, Um, which certainly it's got a ways to go as well. The corporate and legal sector and elsewhere has recognized that in fact, diversity drives creativity. There's both uh, an artistic, but also an economic case for diversity. And for too many years, I think there has been an unfortunate myth perpetuated is that when we want to talk about diversity and inclusion, we somehow think that it should come with a compromise of artistic sorts. And that cannot be farthest from the truth. I I think that's the piece that we need to shift. The minute we recognize that we will be more excellent, more infused with different musical perspectives and richness of repertoire and syllabi here for entirely excluded from, from what we know to be the norm. I think that the minute we recognize that is wealth of artistic merit that would be added um, and would perf- would permit our actual um, f- form, our, our genre, to not only survive but thrive, I think everything can shift and then we are looking at, at you know, sky's the limit truly after that. Mm, I think those are great points that diversity does drive creativity and artistic excellence depends on diversity. Great points. You mentioned that you're still seeing purposeful exclusion within the classical music world. Can you give us some examples of that exclusion that you're that you've observed? Well, 
Um, I think some of the examples will sound all too familiar. We may uh, have become maybe too numb to some of these uh, happenings and as such don't note those as purposeful exclusion. But in my mind, when there is a faculty opening or a staff opening at an orchestra um, and we say we wish to be uh, diverse and we want to make sure that we make every effort to really change the norm. But yet we do absolutely nothing, statistically speaking, to ensure that you know at least 50% of our candidate pool is represented by black and brown people, for example, then we are purposefully making a decision that diversity isn't all that important. And as such, we are perfectly comfortable with staying within the confines of those who we know and still not making any intentional hires that would begin to change the landscape of our music school, of our conservatory, of our department, of you know, um, of our staffing at a particular institution. Additionally, I think we all make decisions about you know, as pedagogues, we will teach our studio, um, you know, the gems of what we consider to be masterpieces. Mm-hmm. And when we intentionally program and plan to do so in a manner that only perpetuates the whiteness um, and what we know to be the canon, incomplete albeit, then we are intentionally saying it isn't important for my studio to understand that besides the Mozart by Lincoln Cherry, there are also those by Chevalier de Saint-Georges, a black French composer, a contemporary of Mozart, who's written amazing works and and wonderful repertoire that should certainly be studied and known and understood. And, and, you know, these examples only go on. And when intentionally, time after time, a leadership post is filled by the kind of um, usual suspects, those who are on the rosters of headhunters, those who have the decades of experience of, you know, fund development or artistic programming or community engagement, and we are comfortable with that, then we are intentionally saying that all of this is nice, but, uh, you know, it, on the scheme, in the scheme of things, diversity plays the last fiddle. And as such, we're not going to prioritize it because change isn't all that important. Okay, so kind of what I hear you saying is some of the purposeful exclusion is sort of related to uh, Ibram Kendi's work, the book, How to Be Anti-Racist, and kind of that Mm -hmm. concept that it's not enough to just be open to color in the classical music world, but you need to be actively making it happen. Is that right? Yes, in essence, absolutely. I I do think being generally and implicitly open would have been all right a couple hundred years ago. Um, Today, it is, you know, it is morally wrong, in my opinion, because and in particular, it's the wrong time to do this, when in the wake of tragedies and racial unrest, Um, our institutions rushed to create a solidarity statement, probably sunk, you know, dozens of, um, you know, significant, certainly resources into PR firms and communication specialists for crisis communication Mm -hmm. to say or establish or tell their students, tell their faculty, um, tell their communities and constituents that they 
very much support the work of organizations who work for equity and or are pro-tolerance and otherwise wish to see this violence stop. Mm-hmm. Um, I think not only are those statements wo- woefully insufficient, but they're also false unless they're backed by action. Mm-hmm. So yes, I think it's insufficient and in some ways um, it, disingenuous and wrong and overdue to kind of be thinking about tolerance anymore. I think there needs to be, this is everyone's fight. Mm-hmm. And I think if we care as much as we say we do about our our sector, our genre, our art form that is so incredibly rich and beloved and uh, has so much to offer to every young person and is a critical part of any society's function, then I think um, that active intentionality and commitment and steadfast commitment is is the only thing for which there's a place right now. Hmm. There's been a lot in the news recently and has been for a while about whether or not students' ethnicity is being considered or should be considered in the admissions process for universities. Is there an equivalent for faculty and admissions, like a a requirement that a certain percentage of faculty and administration of a university be of color? Well, of course, our field is, um, I think, deathly or panically afraid of what would be quotas. Um, and I think that's been an excuse to kind of stave off the discomfort that may come with goals which are smart. And, and when you say down. your field, is that the classical music field or classical the university music. higher education oh, both. field? I will say both. I, okay. will, I, will, I, I feel I'm of both worlds since I have the, the privilege of also traversing the waters, at least to some extent, in, in the academia as well. Mm-hmm. But I think in particular, classical music is entirely uncomfortable with numbers and quotas. Mm-hmm. Um, if we looked at those as goals rather than quotas, then I think we could truly benefit from um, doing a very simple study or a comparison and said, you know, if you live in a city like Detroit um, and, you know, and your population is nearly 90% black mm-hmm. and I am either a music school or a conservatory or an orchestra that resides in this community and wishes to serve that community, then what might I look like in a year, in three, in five, so that I get closer, somewhat closer to that representation? And even if the snapshot got wider and we said Metro Detroit, then we're still looking at numbers that are far more compelling than anything that exists you know, as part of the fabric of the orchestra. So I think we don't have those very specific numbers. As such, our work isn't goal-driven. We're kind of setting ourselves up to fail in some ways. You know, less than 1% of music performed by orchestras today is by black and brown composers, actually by composers of any color, I should correct Mm -hmm. myself. And imagine if we said that it's even a graduated goal that over over the course of the next five years, we wish to be at 15% of all of our music be performed and programmed as part of the subscription series, importantly, to be by non-white composers. Imagine the impact and not only the attention this would get from the field and the media, because I think they would probably just be shocked, but also the statement this would make to our community, to young people, to parents, and you know, to the immigrant community that may love 
um, you know, in a particular city or, or our locale. I think those are, to, I'm a fan of numbers. I think our goals need to be specific. They need to be measurable. In this case, I think they should also be aspirational because, it, you know, I think we, we can't, we can't afford to be incremental anymore. Mm -hmm. But I also absolutely think they need to be time bound um, because I think uh, absent that we are letting ourselves off the hook and honestly, our field suffers. Yeah, something that can be done at any time typically doesn't end up being done at all. Right. And, <laughs> and I think that that's, deadline. <laughs> absolutely. And I think if I know that there are many friends and colleagues who might be my critics on this and they feel that that deadline is self-imposed and in fact it doesn't, that we need time to build consensus. We've been building consensus for many, many decades and centuries and it's not gotten us that far. Mm -hmm. so. Well, during your tenure at Sphinx, you've really expanded their partner network, their international par partner network. Tell us about some of the individuals and organizations that Sphinx partners with. Absolutely. So, of course, I, I think we would be nowhere without our partners. So that's something that's been part of Sphinx's DNA and part of our thinking since the inception when our founder um, knew that this is a paradigm that needs to be shifted and we need to work with others as part of the fabric of the field. Um, we partner, um, you know, as I said, with probably 80 orchestras or so and 20 um, or 25 music schools and conservatories. We have um, dozens of partnerships with presenting houses across the country that range from Carnegie Hall to much smaller venues um, uh, like the Detroit Music Society. Um, here in our own backyard. But also, interestingly, we've built partnerships with music schools, conservatories, and orchestras abroad as well. As part of our Global Scholars Program, our laureates, our artists have had the opportunity to perform with London Symphony and Philharmonic. There's also sister organizations abroad who have begun their work more recently than Sphinx, but who are after some of the same ideals, such as the Chineke Foundation, that's the first organization, first charity of its kind in Europe that's working to advance diversity um, for Black and ethnic minorities, um, not only in UK, but throughout Europe. And these, these partnerships evolve. Um, University of the Arts in, in Berlin has been a partner. We have worked with various embassies all throughout the world, ranging from Germany to Turkey, um, where we've built programs that essentially cater to and serve um, immigrant populations and other uh, minority populations or marginalized communities where we use music, performance, teaching, and collaboration as a means to find a common language. Uh, and that's really expanded Sphinx's not only impact, but its own, um, its own network and the trajectory of our work. You mentioned some of those symphonies and orchestra partners. Are there any universities that you partner with or cultural leaders? Absolutely. Yes. The universities, particularly music departments and schools of music within universities are kind of um, a big subset of our partners. And they, uh, they, it's really partnerships all throughout the country. And uh, the way we partner with universities is um, they provide a number of scholarship opportunities for some of our alumni who are pursuing um, undergraduate and graduate degrees. Some universities have also served as uh, presenters by bringing our touring ensembles and individual musicians for residencies, concerts, and community engagement work. 
Um, and, and they're certainly important players in our industry. And we kind of look forward to always expanding ways in which we do work together. Mm. Well, I ask all my guests to close out our conversation with a musical ending, a coda, by sharing a song or a story about a moment that music enhanced your life. Do you have a story or a song that you can share with listeners today? Sure. For me, um, there are far too many. And rather than um, something enhancing in my life, I think I I reflect back often to a work by an African-American composer, an amazing African-American composer out uh, based out in California in Los Angeles, and that's Michael Abels. Uh, when Sphinx turned 10 years old, we commissioned a work, a celebratory composition for the Sphinx Symphony and a set of young artists who performed as soloists. And that work was called Delights and Dances. Um, to me, it's an exuberant, extraordinary piece of music that is sort of this anthology of music in America in that it it's a classical work, absolutely, but it incorporates elements of jazz, blues, um, bluegrass idioms and, you know, elements of spirituals, dance and otherwise. It is as quintessentially America and as uh, American as and as diverse as the country itself. It's, it's very fabric. Um, to me, it's a beautiful piece of music it is almost cinematic in nature and it's become kind of sphinx's soundtrack um i also particularly celebrate that work because i remember um kind of standing on the stage of carnegie hall and listening to uh, an adaptation of that work be rehearsed and performed by our sphinx virtuosi and it was just a momentous occasion because it was a way to say there is incredible music that needs to be studied and needs to be performed and shared um, with our audiences, with our communities, with young people who may not know that there are Black classical composers who write this incredible work. Um, so I would invite and encourage anyone um, to take a listen. It is available um, through Sphinx's own website, either by search or on Sphinx Virtuosi's page. There are um, different versions of the work, one written for full orchestra with uh, full symphonic setting with some soloists, and then another version that's adapted for a smaller string orchestra, that's our Space Virtuosi, with a quartet of soloists. And I hope, um, I hope you get as inspired as I once was and continue to be by this work.
<laughs> but incredible music and playing. My forearms and hands are tired just listening to that. And I'm really reminded of the similarities between athletes and musicians. That was the sizzle reel from Delights and Dances by Michael Abels. You can view that sizzle reel YouTube video on Sphinx's website or right in the show notes for an even more impactful listening experience. Thank you so much to Afa for sharing with us today and for all that she and the Sphinx organization do to enhance lives with music. I really appreciated her input and her practical recommendations. A uh, shout out today goes to listener Mary Beth Milner for a great idea she posted on social media related to episode 59, How Does Music Learning Impact Other Learning? That episode featured Dr. Anita Collins, whose new book was released September 1st. The book is called The Music Advantage, How Learning Music Helps Your Child's Brain and Well-Being. And it discusses the research on music learning's foundational relationship to other learning, including reading. Mary Beth commented that this book, quote, will become my new baby shower gift, end quote. Great idea. I am stealing this idea and it's already been added to my list of gift ideas. So thank you, Mary Beth. Uh, fall here in the Midwest is well underway. All the schools in my area are back in session. Leaves are starting to turn color here in Minnesota and there's a chill in the air. I absolutely love this time of year and I'm including some links in today's show notes for previous episodes that are evergreen and especially applicable this time of year. If you're missing the fall sounds of football and marching bands, you can get your fix with episode 13, Heartbeat of the Stadium and the Sound of Fall with University of North Texas Director of Athletic Bands, Daniel Cook. The Jewish High Holy Days are taking place right now and include rituals of renewal, which I think we could all use right now. You can learn more in Episode 7, Music's Role in Jewish Culture and Celebrations. And if you or your child is engaged in distance learning and you could use some online learning encouragement, you can hear about the unexpected benefits of the slow but deep nature of online learning in episode 33, which ironically was recorded just before quarantines hit home here in the U.S. In fact, I reference something about South Korea's quarantines in the conversation. Little did I know that just within a week we would be experiencing those quarantines here in the U.S., here at Enhanced Life with Music, we take a look at the benefits of music and its impact on our everyday lives, looking at it through the lens of science, medicine, sports, education, entertainment, business. If there's a topic you'd like to hear us talk about, please let me know. You can connect with me on social media, email, or my website. All links are in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining me today. Until next week, may your life be enhanced with music.